building community through amplifying the voices and vision of innovative educational leaders, practitioners, and learners from South Africa. My name is Jenna Gilmore. Um, I'm a recently qualified teacher and I'm a proud staff member of Pineland High School and a proud member of the Jake Skirball Fellowship Program. Um, I have been with the Jake Skirball Fellowship Program for a year. Um, they, they joined with me, well, I joined with them during my PGCE year at UCT last year. And I've felt very grateful for their support um, since that since that time. So that's a little bit about me. Hi, my name is Kanga. I hope you get that right. Kanga. <laughs> I am also a newly qualified teacher from the University of Pretoria. I received the fellowship last year during my PGCE year. I am also a proud staff member at Gateway High School, which is basically a new high school in Cape Town that is barely three months old. And my journey with JDF dates back um, to 2017 when I applied to get the scholarship, but unfortunately things didn't go according to plan. And then last year during my PGCE year, I received the fellowship. And I noticed that you keep um, mentioning or referring to it as a foundation. It is actually the Dave Crowell Fellowship. Sorry, it's the Jacks Herville Fellowship. Thank you for correcting me. Now, talking about the Jacks Herville uh, Fellowship, is Kanya with you? Kaya, yes. Kaya, Kaya, can you please give a little bit of, of background to the fellowship and the work that you do? So, Kaya is with us, but um, in the meantime, I'm happy to say that for, for, for on our side, it's fellows that our experience of the fellowship is that it is a rigorous selection process to start. We go through quite a rigorous selection for um, starting with a, a kind of like a document that we fill in and an interview process, and then um, making it through those stages, we end up at a selection camp. And the whole mission of the Jake Scrabble Fellowship is to um, nurture and encourage young educators in South Africa to provide a supportive framework for the young educators um, to thrive and um, grow into the lifelong learners that we hope to be. Um, and that support continues from our, well, for me and Ramna, from our PGCE year for two years into our teaching careers. So um, I hope that helps bring some clarity on how, how we fit into that fellowship program. Great. We do not need uh, Kanya to Kaya to answer. I think you've given us the back background to the fellowship that we need. Now, um, at the end, the very end, the tale of Women's Month 2022, what has been your experiences and what would you say are the significance or not of Women's Day in South Africa? Um. I think this speaks to my experiences as a female teacher during this Women's Month. I've seen sometimes that there is a lot of, I don't want to use the term undermining, but within this, this sphere where if you're struggling with discipline, you're asked to go to the male staff members to assist you with disciplining the 
students, um, you are asked to go to the male staff members to get help with printing, with caring of folks. Um, you notice that in leadership position amongst our schools, the principals, the deputies, the HODs are male. So it's definitely a conversation in the women front um, of advocating for more females, particularly in leadership positions within the education space. Because it's quite weird that there's more females in the profession but there is less females in leadership positions within the profession. And that's quite common across the country, but even more common in the Eastern Cape where I come from, where females are not considered strong leaders or reputable principals. And to this day, I think it's a conversation we continuously need to, to have, and most importantly, during months like August, which is you know, the Women's Month. Yeah. A very valid observation, I would say, because I still remember in, even in my school days that the principals and deputies would be male and the rest of the staff predominantly female. But things are changing, we hope, and you're part of the change. Jenna, your experiences about uh, Women's Month or just your observations in general? Yeah, I think that so at this Women's Month, particularly in my school environment, I felt very proud because we firstly acknowledge that, you know, teaching is predominantly seen at this, well not seen, but we have so many female teachers in our country, as some already mentioned, and our school recognized that and recognized that, you know, teaching is such valuable work and we recognize that we, there's honor there, there's honor in the women who step out and serve in that way. We had a kind of I'm part of the transformation committee at my school and we had a woman of the week each week we highlighted a South African woman and we printed posters and we just brought awareness to powerful women in our country who we can all be inspired by not just other women but women and men can be inspired by so I really felt this month that I'm very blessed and grateful to be surrounded by strong women both in my school and in the Jake Scoville Fellowship Program we have some incredible female role models there so this Women's Month has been a really positive and informative month for me also as a as a newly qualified teacher. Yeah, also adding into what Jenna is saying, um, the Women's Month has also, like you said, been a time of great conversation. Conversations like why are only, why do daycare schools only hire females? When you look at grade R teachers, we barely have male staff members. So this I don't want to say belittling of women where we are only assumed to deserve parts of spaces within the education system. We are more suited in the foundation phase. And the higher you go, the, the science and math people should be male. And the stereotype is the male are good with those and females are less likely to be that. So it's, it's been a time of great open-minded conversations about mm -hmm. many things about women in the education sphere. And one can just hope that what you plan to do in changing the status quo will actually open the eyes of the girls that you're working 
with in terms of your learners so that they can see that you're trailblazing so that in the end women that you are teaching little girls you're teaching today will be able to stand up and say we want to be counted the same way as as the men that is the dream yes that is the goal <laughs> Okay, talking about dreams and goals. Let's talk about your goals. Now, highlights of your career as newly qualified teachers. What excited you or ex, or is still exciting you about going to work? Okay, um I'll start this one off. For me, my my biggest excitement is to be on the front lines as it were, to be in the mess um, that is teaching. And I say mess in, in a light-hearted way. It is, it is a form of a front line there where we're meeting challenges that filter in from society in this micro space um, of a school. So I think that's definitely one of my, um, my highlights, as well as the fact that in this time, I really feel that I'm also discovering new levels to my own resilience um, and really feeling quite stretched and challenged as, you know, working in a school, we are working not only just in a school, but in a microspace of a wounded society where we're coming into contact with diverse young people with, you know, from backgrounds that are complex and backgrounds filled with trauma. Um, so I'm having to dig deep to um, unlock processes of capacity building in my students um, and figuring out who I am in the space, who I am as a teacher. And I think the, the interesting thing is that the greatest challenges for me, you know, me being in this mess, figuring out my voice, figuring out um, what it looks like to be a, a teacher in 2022. I think those biggest challenges are actually just extreme highlights for me because I feel myself growing and stretching and it is such a gift to be able to um, teach and serve the, the young people of our country in this time. So um, while it is a challenging, challenging profession, it is so, so worthwhile. I can just... Sorry, I can. Personally, I've been most excited about applying that JGS skills. I think throughout our PGCE year, we've been mentored and I don't want to say overloaded with so many skills that we can use to become the best yes. version of ourselves. And I think at some point, I felt that when are we ever going to apply all of so for me, the excitement has been coming from getting an opportunity to finally pull out the suitcase, basically, mm. that I was handed over by JGF and putting it into place. Finally, that is very <laughs> exciting for me. And it's so exciting to become part of people's journeys of becoming. Mm. And that is probably the greatest excitement about my career. Yeah. You're literally being paid to watch people succeed <laughs> and each day it's amazing to to watch someone transform from being the naughty boy <laughs> to behaving to going back to naughty again <laughs> but you know all that is forward to watch this person become possibly the best version of themselves and that to me is super super exciting interestingly jenna mentioned the community the environment uh, surrounding the the, the, the child and also the mess. And we uh, got a communique from a teacher and a principal, open communique, an open letter to the public, a public letter to parents about discipline problems in his own school and basically stating what a mess the school is in. 
and reaching out to parents to to support the school in addressing the mess and part of the mess would you would one can um, probably categorize as discipline or a lack of res uh, a discipline and a lack of respect in terms of how learners behave in the classroom and um, an inadequacy in the teacher response to ill discipline and disrespect. Through this fellowship program, you're talking about a suitcase. Is there a tool in that suitcase that will bring back discipline, that will bring back respect into the school environment? Yeah, I, I think... I think the suitcase is, it's an, <laughs> I love it. I think the suitcase is a fantastic analogy. Um, and I think that the JDF suitcase is not one that would be recognized in, in previous traditional modes of teaching because we are the JDF community and the cohort that comes from that, we are about reimagining how education is done, how discipline is done, inviting students into that process. I think the issues of discipline that arise are, it's often a pushback and, and a, a mixture of anger, maybe from home, maybe even at school people are just angry about their own education. There's a lot of anger, there's a lot of feeling. So in order for us to discipline in that moment, we have to hold that feeling, we have to recognize those feelings, be authentic teachers, be human teachers, welcome in students, forgive students, love students, look at restorative discipline rather than punitive discipline, and it's challenging. It is really hard work, but the JDF suitcase is about training us as young educators to be to be compassionate, to be kind, um, and to be authentic, to be real, to treat our students as geniuses. You know, the the minute we we can view our students as each individual as a genius, as valuable, um, then we welcome them into the space. And then I firmly believe, and I think the JDF mission is you know, fully on board with this, is that, that that is the key shift there, when we can start to help young people to realize their responsibility in this world, their, the possibilities that they have in their own lives, get them excited about that, and the respect will fall in line there. Um, that's just a few thoughts from my side on the suitcase and how, how JGF has equipped us. And it's about being caring, being open, um, and being loving teachers despite the difficulties. I don't know if you'd like to add. I think for me, in the many things that are inside the source, the suitcase has always been a JGF motor mm. into how there is no problem without a solution. As dreadful as it sounds in the moment when you are facing a 17-year-old who's high on something, but the JGF suitcase has always alluded to the fact that there is a solution for that so myself and Jenna come from completely different school environments, but I know in the suitcase is a set of tools that enable me with my difficulties and my challenges to go into that mm. environment and find solutions that are suited for my problems. Because I think Jenna's suitcase might be a little bit different from mine, so the people who pack mm. our, suit our suitcases, which would be our program officers, mm. are very different, sort of, mm. I think they sort of tailor make your suitcase <laughs> for you. And um, so in my suitcase it's definitely a set of skills that even when I don't feel like they are working in the moment, I know they are. 
in the resilience over time you notice that I don't think I would have done this. Yeah. I don't think this trip would have been successful without you know that set of skills. Yeah, and I think part of that suitcase includes the fact that we have mentors through the JDF program. That's definitely one of the um, key uh, support networks. Is we have mentors, we have teacher coaches. Now that we're currently um, teachers ourselves. And we have this community of practice just amongst each other as newly qualified teachers. And I've found that to be such a comfort um, that we can share our experiences, share our frustrations, and share solutions and resources. Um, that's been a real gift. So I think that some of also just quickly the, the practical um, suitcase resources that come with the JDF program. Uh, if you now have to look at the challenging that you're facing as newly uh, qualified teachers in the environment, what would you say are, are the most important challenges that you are, overcome, or are overcoming or that you've overcome during the, the few years or few months that you've been teaching? Um, okay, well, for, on my side, one of those challenges would definitely have been, you know, develop, developing my own clarity on who I want to be as a teacher in the midst of these traditional frameworks. Um, but I think going on from that, um, one of the, the main challenges is that, the, you know, the rhythms, rituals and routines of schools are demanding. And it often feels like, you know, I'm, I'm, like I mentioned previously, I'm part of a transformation committee. I'm also coaching sports. Um, I'm involved in cultural um, events like school plays and things. And I really feel like there's just not enough hours in the day for that and all the other responsibilities that come with being a teacher and being an invested teacher. So that is a challenge, is, is fitting everything in, as well as the fact that, you know, if you're going to be an empathetic and caring educator, it's, it's a whole, um, you know, I'm learning a lot about processing and, and determining what feelings and complexities and issues are mine to carry and what are mine to let go of at the end of each day. Because the students who come in there, energetic or they're, miserable or they, they're carrying so much and it's difficult not to absorb that when you're trying to unlock some of that feeling. So I think, you know, that, that's a real learning process is having those spaces to figure out a balance between, okay, what is mine to carry and what is mine to let go in this moment? Do I need to call in um, some extra help from maybe a grade head um, and really figuring that out? It's, it's very challenging, but I'm finding in term three now and I do feel like I am getting a bit better at that. Yeah, I think for me the biggest, biggest challenge has been, I don't want to say working in an environment that doesn't enable the best version of you to come out. I think it's, it's quite difficult to start a rugby club when you don't have a field. It's quite difficult for you to that a debate club that is going to practice or rehearse after school if the kids have been taken by bus back to their communities in Yanga and Philippines. I think it's quite difficult for you to go to class and be joyous and be loud, yet the kids do not have a seating scheme and they keep asking when is it coming. So just working in an environment that has so many challenges socially and economically that are hard to overpass and just continue with the business of the day. So that has been my biggest challenge. 
And you are probably representative of uh, more than half of the schools in, in the Western Cape that's um, operating in our poorer communities with less resources. But you're trying. And as we are saying, as young teachers, you are also open to finding new ways for the challenges ahead of you and knocking at doors. And maybe, hopefully, the doors will open. But one of the main challenges that has been stated uh, to confront teaching in the future is the expected teacher shortages. Now, if we look at, at schools at the moment, we, we see, in, even in our own communities, teachers are retiring. And COVID also did a lot in terms of reducing teacher numbers because a lot of teachers did not feel ready to go back after, after COVID. A lot of people, of teachers, according to reports, have taken early retirement. Um, what do you think will happen in the classroom? Should there be teacher shortages? Um, well, I think that, I mean, that is an, an emergency, I feel. I mean, there's such urgency around needing to um, reimagine the teaching profession as, um, you know, a, a career that is inviting and a career that is, uh, you know, not just one about teaching, but one of social justice, one of reimagining our society. So I think, I mean, I've, I've found, I did that, I read that in um, a Stellenbosch economist, he did a study and he found that uh, we need, as a country, about 25,000 teachers to graduate per year. And at the moment, we're only getting 15,000. So you're right that as people retire, we, we are facing quite a, a daunting um, reality that we might not have enough teachers. So we do need to create a sense of urgency around shifting the narrative of what being a teacher in our country looks like. Um, there are quite a lot of negative connotations around it because we're living in challenging times and, um, you know, teaching is, has got quite a low status in the sense of, you know, unfortunately that is the way it is viewed currently um, and we need to reimagine that. We need to start inviting people into this journey of reshaping society. It's not just teaching, it's um, we, like the Jake Scherbel mission, that there's three, those three pillars is becoming an expert teacher, um, your social entrepreneur, and then the other one, I can't remember now. But yeah, the point is that there are these different factors that we can actually influence and shape society through education. And I, I mean, we are very excited about that. So we really hope that that enthusiasm can catch on and that more young people will start getting invested in the idea of teaching because it's not just about a content and knowing a subject well, it's about reshaping our country. And I think. Adding on to that challenge, our biggest challenge also has been we have not been able to change people's perceptions about teaching and about education or rather going into education. So we are still not attracting the kids that are in the top 10 um, at the end of the year with their metric results because we have not managed to get them to think about education. And even if I were to ask you if you do have kids and what conversations are you having with them regarding the careers they'd like to take? You find the majority of the, of the times, even parents are not having conversations. They're not even presenting teaching as an option to their kids. So we, are, we have to start at a social level also, redefining completely, mm -hmm. showing young people 
presenting it as an option, right? Yeah. Um, so I think socially that's been the biggest challenge, being able to present it as a as an attractable option to to young people in this country. Mm. And I would also say, and I'm yeah, and I'm including the two of you, that it's also about retention of teachers. That we would like people that is as enthusiastic as you at the beginning of your teacher careers to continue and to stay in in teaching. But that's not often the the case. What would make you stay, and what would make you leave? What what is it that make young teachers stay in the profession for a few years and then leave? And what is it that will make you different and that will keep you until the end of the careers in teaching? I hope this doesn't take away from my passion. Um, I think the biggest, biggest one that is currently happening, even with my colleagues, is the financial conversation, the rate at which teachers grow financially. So people want to be taking mortgage, send their kids to decent schools, be able to afford cars. So you find that as much as our starting rate is a very good one, the rate at which we grow financially or at an economic level is one that doesn't necessarily sit well with a lot of people. We have a lot of these young people that are saying, I'm not comfortable with this financially and I do not want to spend the rest of my years leaving from hand to mouth. So I think one of the many ways in which we can get more people to go into the teaching space is if we create an, an attractable option for them to go there. Um, let's look at options that young people want to go into. Um, medicine is just one. Majority of the times is because of the stability financially that comes with that. So I, I wish maybe it's a conversation we could branch into, obviously later on in the, in the year. Mm. What do you yeah. think, you know, what do you think could make you, um, or, or make yeah. young people leave? I fully agree that I think, I mean, when, when I mention to um, acquaintances and sometimes friends that I've chosen teaching, they're always a bit shocked. <laughs> um, you know, there, there isn't a lot of money in it, but that's not why people start to teach, I don't think. But it's completely true to say that it's a challenge for people who, you know, are really dependent on a teaching salary um, as a main source of income. So, yeah, I would fully agree that that would be a challenge. Um, and I think... I think for me, I've, I've been encouraged, you know, there are some days where I'm really exhausted and I'm questioning my life decisions and wondering, you know, did I make the right call? I think it's very human to have those thoughts. But, you know, reminding myself that I'm, it's, it's the passion that brings, brings you here and I think it's the passion that would keep you here. So I, that's what I'm hoping anyway. And I think for me personally, the only reason I would leave teaching would be to step into education potentially as a teacher trainer or as an educational psychologist or, you know, in a different branch of education. Um, but personally, I think that teaching and education is where I'm, I'm meant to be in life. Um, and I feel very grateful for that clarity. So I, I can only hope that having conversations with, you know, people my age and people now younger than me and my, my students, that I can encourage them to see that being a teacher it is so. It is such an exciting and broad career choice because you are engaging with people who are so interesting, and um, there are so many positives to take from that. In the beginning, you've mentioned the community, the environment, and I want to add teachers sitting with uh, 
classes of 50 learners and more, teachers um, working with limited resources, teachers being overburdened by just the sheer uh, magnitude of dealing with stressed um, children day by day, children that's angry, as you've mentioned, children with uh, um, problems, discipline, violent children, children that's bullying, children that's using drugs in school, children having sex in school. So you are telling me, the two of you, that the school environment itself won't necessarily make you leave the, the profession that those uh, factors, looking at a school, an average school, and all its problems, is not one of the factors that would, that would make you stressed, tired, and say, uh-uh, this is not for me. For me, definitely, definitely not. I, I do understand, in the moment, it, it feels like you'd want to take your bag and leave. That's how it feels like in the mm -hmm. moment. But I best believe every day of your life is, some life-changing moment that happens. My funniest stories, you know, I, I bring, when I'm with friends, I bring them to, they're like, tell us, tell us one of your stories. Tell us, tell us about that kid. They even know them by their names because there is so many characters and they are going to change your life. I, I sometimes don't want weekends. I'm like, this is, I, I just want a continuation of the week to just, never stop because in the in the midst of all of those draining and challenging things uh, is this random 13 year old who thinks you smell really nice <laughs> man you smell so good oh, and they can't stop and you're like really I'm so happy and they change your entire day or this one who wants to tie your hair and you're like but we're in high school we don't you don't tie your teacher's hair here or this one who always has a joke that makes half the class laugh every day without fail. Or this person who has moved from a 14% to a 70% in a space of seven weeks. And those moments are rewarding. They mm. are so rewarding, yeah. at least for me. Yeah, and I think the difficulty, like, um, yeah, like we've been saying, is that there are moments where you want to give up, you want to say, no, this is too much. And it, it's true, it happens. But the minute we can, we look at these young people, you know, if we look at them and we think, okay, these children, they're struggling with substances, they're struggling, struggling with trauma at home, they're struggling with the society that we are all living in. It's not the children, they're not the problem. The children are, are the solution to these problems. So if we, as, it's a reality that people run away from it, but it feels like we, we cannot give up on children who are suffering in our society because of these issues when these children are actually the key to solving these problems. And it is that belief that would hold me in that space too because it's not, yes, the children are struggling and they, they cause nonsense sometimes, but that nonsense is not, not a result of the child. It's a result of the society. And when we can help to activate that child, to open up that mindset, to encourage real learning, real critical thinking, then that child becomes an agent of change in their own community and becomes a solution, not the problem that we sometimes view young people to be. Yeah, Jenna, and also like from my JGS suitcase, there's this whole idea around turning um, challenges into opportunities. Even in my school, as, as frustrating as it is, 
there's this bunch of boys who dance really well and all you want to do during break time is to organize them to dance. There's a bunch of them that can sing very well. So in the midst of a pregnant 15-year-old or a troublesome 15-year-old boy is a really good dancer who dances like no one you've ever seen before. So in that 16-year-old squad with that one pregnant girl is a beautiful group of girls who can sing. So this constant JJF idea of turning all of these challenges into into opportunities. So it's, it's, it's really looking at these people cannot be completely, they cannot be that bad. The problem is with you if you get into a space and you see nothing positive about it. So there's a lot more things positive. You just need to dig very deeply to to to, to get hold of them. Be, because we're living in a society that is not perfect, we cannot run away or we cannot deny the reports on teacher abuses and corporal punishments still being practiced or teachers impregnating learners. And one is asking the question, um, if the personal ethics, if the morality of the teacher um, failed, the teacher is using corporal punishment, the teacher is making a, a teenage girl pregnant, what are the the code of conduct what is the the the, the regulations is there enough uh, of sanctions for teachers um overstepping the boundaries and for teachers not acting in line with the code of conduct for teachers is there enough sanctions for teachers not following the rules um i feel that 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 can be quite school dependent. I mean, the policies in, in different schools, you would hope for a consistency there. And I think the issue is that different schools with different levels of resources who take these issues, um, some will take them maybe more seriously than others. So it's, it's very complex. But I think that underlying it all, um, this abuse of power, it stems from um, the concept that teachers need to have full authority, control and power in the classroom. And if that is what we encourage teachers to have, is this complete dictatorship where children and young people are viewed, you know, that in order for them to learn, they must be silent and they must be controlled. When we, when we encourage teachers to, to think in that, with that mindset, we run a very dangerous um, risk there of, of, you know, giving, uh, you know, unhealthy power to, to a teacher in the classroom space. Um, I think in this, in a, in a way to potentially address that would be to look at how we how we enable teachers. How are we giving teachers power in the classroom? What does it look like? Um, instead of this very punitive traditional discipline, what are we? Can we reimagine that? Can we maybe bring in some restorative discipline where students come in and are invited to um, to sit down and you know there's a bit of a, a relational aspect to the discipline. Um, and I really feel that we we love our students when we can give them a healthy relationship and a constant relationship with clear boundaries. Because a lot of our young people are coming in from homes where there isn't a, there isn't a constant healthy relationship with an adult. So often the teacher is that one role model, and it is such a tragedy that we have these cases of teachers abusing that um, abusing that role. And I feel that if we can kind of reimagine what it means to be a teacher in control in a classroom, 
that we can fix that. And I think it comes through the code of conduct and, t and you know, staff members taking that seriously, but also comes through teachers holding one another accountable. If teachers can form communities of practice amongst themselves in schools and communicate and talk to each other and share discipline problems and share solutions to those problems um, and be open about that and hold one another accountable to a high standard of respecting their students. It's a two-way street. Yes, we, we demand respect from our students, but they have right to demand respect from us. We are humans, first and foremost. So if we would like our students to you know, respect, it's got to be mutual. Um, and in the same way, I just feel that um, it's such a powerful thing when colleagues can, can reinforce that and when colleagues can step in and hold each other accountable. So I think that's potentially a solution with the code of conduct. Where it comes into practice. It's not just a document. It comes into practice in staff meetings, in staff discussions, and that kind of format. Yeah, also adding on to what Jenna is saying, I'm reporting on issues such as corporal punishment as well as teachers um, impregnating learners or whatever the case may be. I think our, our policy is quite clear and it's perfect on paper. If you ever take out the safe document that governs each and every one of us who are in the education space interacting with the learner, it's a perfect, clear policy. The issue starts when there is no implementation of that policy. When I come from the Eastern Cape and you hear that a child has reported rape or has reported a teacher asking for rape, and the principal will ask the learner, um, they will pay 200 rand to sort of brush it off. That's where the problem starts. The policy is perfect, it's there, and it protects, I want to believe, it does protect me. And more than anything, it protects the client who, who happens to be the learner in this case. So I, 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 I don't think there's anything, and I fully agree with the space and, and any of the standards that mm -hmm. govern us in our line of work. My issue is any environment, any community, any school that refuses to put that into practice. Mm -hmm. And remember, if we do not put that into practice, it remains just a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. we, we actually give that piece of paper power when we start implementing it. Yeah. Yes, and uh, talking about power and the abuse of power in the classroom, maybe it's also teachers reimagining themselves being the kids that they once were and the children and the challenges they faced while mm -hmm. they were um, still learners in school. But just as regularly we report on racism in schools, especially in former Model C schools, why is racism still an issue in schools today? I think the biggest, biggest one is we don't even realize that racism is happening right in front of our eyes, which is what perpetuates it even more. Um, a comment, a, a very beautiful comment such as telling a black girl that you, are, you articulate yourself very well could be phrased as you speak very good English, right? And that comes across as super racist. So being super cognizant of our own biases is something we constantly need to do. And I feel like racism continues to be a thing because teachers, both young and old, are not ready to recognize their own biases that exist when they look at a, at a child. An example is I carry biases myself about 
a certain age group and I'm bound to to implement those biases. So we constantly need to be in check of every idea that we carry. And unfortunately, there is no way you confront your own unbi- your own biased opinions or ideas without getting uncomfortable. So I would say racism is still a problem because we are not ready to be very uncomfortable and confront the biases that perpetuate racism in schools in South Africa. Teachers do not only teach, they also impart a particular culture and identity. Just let me explain that I, um, in my um, years of teaching and being a parent of children in school, often heard um, teachers say, you must pronounce this word in a particular way. You must speak like this. And and by that, they meant the standard English or the standard Afrikaans. Whereas the learner community expressed themselves differently. And it creates a situation where where children had a, uh, would have a particular way that they are being taught to, to speak in school and a particular way that they express themselves at home. And, and it's the same. It's like uh, if you look at culture and identity, the issue is also not uh, going away. It seems as if it resurfaces at least uh, once every year. This position of culture, maybe because the teacher, dem- the teacher demographics do not reflect the learner demography. By that I mean you have a Model C school with predominantly um, non-white children but the staff is still predominantly white because that's the history of the staff. Is it time that we look at the composition of of teachers in relation to their race and in in relation to the, the demographics of the community and the school community because I know and understand why the department is only looking at teachers and at teachers as teachers, but maybe we should start looking at teachers as representatives of the community. Would that help to to sort of ease children into what can be a culture and identity shock? Most definitely. Um, when we place people that look and sound like our kids in their schools, the kids start to redefine completely the education or the space they are in. I'm going to make just one example. In my school, majority of the kids, when you talk about a business, you do not talk about a big investment bank because they will not understand what investor you are talking about. You need to narrow it down to a what to a puzzle shop that is within their community. But if you're not in awareness of their community, you will not be what? You will not understand that the example you are making is completely off from what they understand, right? So if you are talking about assets to a child in the Eastern Cape and you mention an apartment in Santon, they will be lost. But if you talk about the cows and the crow, you talk about the car that the father owns, you start to bring them closer to to things that they have an idea about. But even when it comes to race, if you start to, if you introduce to kids people who do not look like them and do not understand their culture, you are bound to have a problem. A little story, I worked in a boarding school, right? 
this one morning we ran out of water and all the black girls did not did not bath they were literally in their pajamas and the two white girls who stayed in the boarding house literally you know were in their clothes they were dressed and the house mother is like why aren't you dressed girls and the girls were like we were told that you do not leave your house without and it's a black girl status black girls do not leave home without brushing and washing your body it's like the black girl thing that you're taught from a young age but the the white females in the school thought it was okay for us to go to school because we had taken a shower the night before so it is not that bad so the culture thing showed itself right then there is people who were taught culturally that you do not leave the yard if you have not taken a bath and these two people that felt it was okay because the night before we had taken a shower but if there had been a black woman there she would have got it at sight that ah this is what we were taught um in hindsight so representation really 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 matters in in any community in any school kids need to have people they can relate to they need to ask questions that you know if i were to ask jana to help me plan my indoor journey do you have any you know i would be very useless <laughs> yes, right so but if i'm going to my black teacher to ask about what needs to be done before that ceremony they probably have a few pointers a representation is very very important within the education space now newly qualified teachers very exciting teachers i must say i enjoy, i enjoy talking to you because i'm in I, can, i i don't think one can ever say ex teacher i'm still a teacher in a different uh, environment working in a different environment and i am touched by your enthusiasm for the the profession despite the challenges but in an ideal world what would your ideal school look like so for me i i really if i were to envision an ideal school in an ideal world i would hope that the school would function as a central base that supports its surrounding community um i would hope that the learners would come in learn from one another to be a very collaborative space where the teachers are also collaborating and learning from one another and from the students um i would hope that students who would come into school would learn what it means to be an informed critical thinker and problem solver um while also learning their content subjects but with a priority a prioritization of the 21st century skills that we so badly need in our society um as a core feature in the educational syllabus um i would hope for that because then when students come in and they learn that the skill set of how to solve problems how to how to identify problems how to think critically about these problems that then when they return home that that um mindset shift that growth in their own um kind of identity it can spread into their families into the community um and then on a more practical note i also had a vision that it would be it would be so empowering if schools could have sustainable farming stations i know that the leeds science and math schools are they've started what are called living learning laboratories um and it's the idea that these um schools have little sections of farm farm area where students are given the responsibility where they must now look after the farm they must grow vegetables it can be 
definitely directly linked to lessons in physical science and biology. So there's that practical element of learning while also learning how do I care for the world? I mean, climate change is a huge issue that we all need to urgently address. And I feel like learning how do I look after a growing thing? That would be such a powerful um, learning tool. And then that food is distributed into the, into the community. So the school becomes this resource for the community. It's a trailblazing, pioneering space um, that shifts the way the community functions. Um, and the values that are instilled in the students in the school space can then be brought home and then societies, you know, community to society to country can be shifted through that. So I think in an ideal world, it would be that well-resourced schools with, um, you know, these very practical, very um, on-the-ground solutions to our current problems, both, I suppose, in South Africa and globally. Uh, I would dare to say globally. And for you, Kamga? I think because of the current set up of my school, I'm probably going to sound very basic. But for me, in an ideal world, I would just love resources. From the minute we walk into the school, teachers have parking, they don't have to fight about that. You go in, there's enough paper for me to print. All the kids have books, they have school uniforms, there is lunch for them. We have a rugby field, a field where they can at least play. So for now, because of my current environment, I think I'm speaking of a vision of basics, the most basic of things, like kids having enough classrooms, enough of the chairs and desks for them to sit in. But more than anything, my ideal school is an environment where everyone in that yard just refuses to give up. I just cannot imagine where you walk in into a class and everyone just refuses to give up. They're like, mm. we, we failed, but I'm refusing to give up. You go to the staff room, the teacher is like, the class was so bad, but they're like, I am refusing to give up. I think that would be like almost mm. perfect, like a bunch of people who refuse to give up on life. I, I think I'd like that more than I'd like the resources. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like they've already given up on the idea and you have to start from scratch, get them to to dream again. And so just a bunch of people that don't or refuse to give up is, is an ideal set of workspace for me. Are you still dreaming of the perfect teacher? Can you just uh, sketch or illustrate the characteristics of that perfect person, the teacher in the classroom? Um, yeah, I think for me, it loops all the way back to what we've been saying about what it looks like to be a teacher in today's reality. And I think for me, the ideal teacher is someone who's, like I said before, who's authentic, who embraces their humanness, prioritizes meaningful connections um, before trying to instill content into the minds of their learners. They you know, teachers need to learn, I think we need to learn how to be holistic um, and commit to educating young people as whole, beautifully complex human beings. Um, and I said this earlier and I'll say it again, I think we need to, the ideal teacher believes that every child is a genius, that every child has the potential to just be pure greatness. <laughs> um, so, and linking um, to what Ramgar said here was um, that I think the perfect teacher 
refuses to give up on their learners despite how the learners behave. You know, you, there's constant forgiveness, boundary setting, but constant forgiveness. Um, teachers who are passionate about their, their subjects, who are, you know, passionate about the work that they're teaching, but first and foremost passionate about the students that they are educating and passionate about seeing those students reach their full potential. Tamda? I think my ideal teacher is a JGF teacher that I have in my head, this one who takes these challenges and uses them as opportunities to learn, goes back home, goes back to the drawing board, will ask the question, how and how can I improve? What can I do better? But more than anything, I think I've used this sentence too many times, but this individual who refuses to give up on young people. I think if you listen to, if you ever ask people who's your favorite teacher, there's always this personal, and that lady just didn't didn't give up on me, didn't give up on me. So I think if every young person had um, knew that there's someone who just will never give up on them, I think that would go a very long way. Any final thoughts, ideas you would like to share with our listeners? Um, just from my side, I think that um, my final thoughts would be that, you know, as teachers, we are looking at the future of our country. And as young teachers, we still are the future, I hope. We haven't quite given that up yet. We are the future, but we're also looking at young people who are the, the future to, to healing our country. So if we want to change the world, and approach and solve these issues of racism, climate change, xenophobia, homophobia, and create a loving, um, critical thinking, compassionate and transformed society, we do this in schools. This is where it happens. This is the foundational place where this change can begin. So I just, my encouragement is that if, you know, if any of the listeners, I suppose, are passionate about any of these issues, that I encourage I encourage people to think about teaching because teaching is not just a content uh, content experience where you're imparting knowledge from one to the other. It's really not that. It's about you know tackling these urgent, urgent challenges head on. So, um, and then another thing that I was um, reflecting on earlier was that uh, there's the idea that we don't measure our success as teachers. Um, in how many doctors we produce, but in how many teachers we produce. <laughs> so, <laughs> <healthy>. <laughs> um, I think my final thoughts would be, I think to any young person listening to this, if you are frustrated about all of the problems affecting our country in this moment right now, going into the education space is probably something you should consider. I always say that people who are going to build or the engineers who are going to build our roads and our hospitals and our clinics and mm. our schools are seated right in my class. The presidents, the ministers who are going to make life-changing decisions about this country are in my class. Doctors, scientists who are going to find cures to HIV and AIDS and many other sicknesses and diseases that we are currently struggling with. They are in my class auditors who are going to find corrupt people, who are going to find where our missing monies are, who are going to invest 
in in our country, they're probably somewhere in my class. Teachers who are going to change other people's lives are in my class. So, and education is 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 probably where you should go if you are frustrated. I'm thinking of lawyers who will make people believe in the justice system again. They are in my class. So it's probably a space you should consider and probably an association with the Gay Fellow Fellowship as well because it will completely change how you look at teaching and how you look at education and how you look at transforming people's lives. Yeah, and just on a on a last note with that, I know that um, well, for us on this line that we we're very grateful for the support and the structure that we've received from the JDS community. Um, despite us not being the only organisation actively working to solve this problem, I mean the Jake Global Fellowship is constantly looking for like-minded education collaboration partners in this process because we're a small drop in the ocean. Um, a drop that's definitely making an impact and we can both feel that um, but it is very exciting to be on this journey with JGF and hopefully as JGF grows with more collaborators and more people on board um, with this vision that we have for education in South Africa.